0: You talk about intimacy of a podcast. I have people who say, "Oh my gosh, Mike, I'm listening to you right now," <laughs> or "You're always with me on my walks," or "You know, I take you with me when you know when I mow the lawn." For me, I earlier today I was hanging out with my friend Jim Collison, who also did this podcast with me. I never did an episode alone, um, and Jim and I were. Well, I called him specifically because I met with a brand new client who I realized very quickly was only new to me. I was not new to them, um, and I can usually tell when they do a double take, and then they because it's over Zoom, and then they'll sort of back up and be like, "Oh my gosh, can you say my name?" <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> and it's can I record it as my exactly,
0: exactly, <laughs> or or they'll say something like, um, "My friends are not going to believe that I talked to the Micah." I'm like, well, how many Micahs do you know? (laughs) It's not that hard to to feel like Micah is a special thing. But this person had told me really deeply what our podcast had meant in their life during a really difficult time. And they told me in ways that I didn't set out to create in the world and I never even thought could happen.
1: Our regular listeners will know about my obsession with individual words. And the one you used was freeing or freedom.
2: What does freedom mean for you? Well guys that's
0: the pursuit. That's the that's the end goal. That's what I'm still trying to catch. Um I think freedom means having the How about this? Taking the permission that you've already been given. And owning it. And I I think, you know, early on, when I first started exploring leaving my corporate job and going out on my own, a good friend asked me what I thought I would gain. And my first reaction was freedom. And she asked me, I'm laying on the, I'm, I'm like naked, under a sheet, in the dark, looking up at white Christmas lights that are supposed to make me feel better about where I am. And she says, Micah, what is going on? And she said it that way. And I remember thinking, holy buckets, leaving my job did not find me freedom. In that moment, I realized, oh my gosh, I thought I was leaving for freedom and I, I trapped myself right away again. I was still feeling anxious that if I didn't answer my email, then I maybe would have promised something to somebody that I had forgotten to give. And that that's like my biggest fear. It's a dumb fear. Like Micah, be afraid of spiders or something, but (laughs) poor, poor, poor execution is more frightening to me than spiders or snakes. I was still working from the minute I woke up until after I should have been in bed I was still valuing my worth by what somebody else would pay for it. And I was still spending a lot of energy worrying about how I was showing up in the world. Meanwhile, you introduced me as a celebrity today and I was not letting any of that sink in. Um, so that that moment for me was realizing, oh my gosh, you you can quite literally strip down. <laughs> and Micah, the, the solution still is not, where you're working or what you're doing. It's it's how you are approaching what you're doing. And I still have not figured this out. Have you had anyone talk about their unlocked moment being nudity before? <laughs>
1: <laughs> My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach, podcaster, and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life. And you'll be meeting them with me We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times, and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. Now, this is an episode I've been looking forward to recording for a long time. When you look at the global coaching community, there are very many coaches but not many that you would recognize walking down the streets. Today's guest is one of the most famous faces in world coaching. After starting her career in broadcast radio, Micah Librand spent over 14 years at the Gallup organization where she developed and launched Gallup's Global Strengths Coach program, educating thousands of coaches and leaders on the life-changing potential of a talent-first approach to coaching. One of those coaches was me, together with her colleague Jim Collison, she spent many years co-hosting Gallup's popular Theme Thursday podcast, a tool for understanding and interpreting Gallup's Clifton Strengths talent assessment. Every single one of my coachees over many years has undertaken Clifton Strengths, and I always direct them to Jim and Micah's incredible podcast content to discover more about their top talents and strengths. After working in different contexts and different countries, Micah describes herself as coming home to coaching. She says it's the work she was born to do. Just last month, she took the leap to set up her own business and is now helping leaders in her own right to experience their unique power and promise. Micah has been one of my top targets to convince and control to come on the podcast ever since I started The Unlock Moment, and I can assure you with absolute certainty that this is an episode you will not want to miss. Micah Librant, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to The Unlock Moment.
0: Carrie, I knew this was going to be fun. Thank you for so much for having me.
1: I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Me too. So I'm going to ask you a big old question to start off with. As an expert in strengths, when you look back over your own life, when did you first notice your own talents and strengths shining through? How far back do you go?
0: Hmm. Um, I, I, well, uh, if you want to go really, really far back, my grandma Garnita had a red carpet in one of her rooms that we all affectionately called the red room. And it was in today's terms, a formal living room, something that I fear has gone (laughs) by the wayside. And I am one of 17 cousins on that side. And I'm chronologically in the middle. So there's exactly as many older cousins as there are younger. And there's about a five-year gap where it's just me and my cousin, Laura, dead center. We're the same age. And Laura Lynn and I used to put on plays (laughs) In the red room, and big family, we always had you know lots of aunts and uncles and cousins around, and um, I do remember the tales that have since been told in um, less shinier terms by my family of times that we would make tickets and make people purchase them and then make them come see our shows in the red room. And at one point, I think my dad said, "Okay, Micah, we will only come if there is a beginning, a middle, and an end to this." But perhaps that's raw communication talent, just wanting to go and not really caring where it's going.
1: And do you see this with people that you work with now that, that you can track their strengths back a, a really long way into, into childhood?
0: Yes, 100% yes. Um, and I, I have a master's in adult learning where I remember I had to take a course that was about the question of nature versus nurture and what effect your upbringing has on your development. And after that course, I came away feeling like I should should have learned that it's all about how you're nurtured. But now that I have two kids of my own, I realize wow, they're very unique from maybe even before birth. And I I love to explore that with my clients as well of which of these has always described you because I find if you can get out um, early that question of tell me how your strengths have shown up then they're less likely to diminish them as being oh, everybody's that way.
1: That's really interesting. And, w- and when was it that you knew the kind of path you wanted to start to take? I know your, your first path was into broadcast. Mm-hmm.
0: It was, yeah. I, um, I was 11 and I moved from the upstairs in my parents' house to the downstairs and there was a TV downstairs. So the next day was a school day and I thought, I'm gonna wake up early and have full access to this TV. I don't think I remembered what I was gonna watch. But I set an alarm. It was the first time I'd ever set an alarm um, for, I remember, 6am. And the the TV was old enough, or I, I am old enough, that the TV just turned on to whatever channel it was on the night before when it had been shut off. And it was Channel 3, NBC, and I saw Katie Couric and Matt Lauer on the Today Show. And... I don't think a morning went by from the time I was 11 until I graduated high school and moved out of my parents' house that I didn't wake up that extra hour early and watch the Today Show. And I loved the intimacy that I felt like I had with these news broadcasters. To me, they weren't just, um, what do we call them in the UK? Uh, not reporters, but-
1: like Newsreaders?
0: Newsreaders, yeah. Um they um, they were friends. They were the my first access that I had to, like, the day. And, and it's
1: such an interesting word you use there, mm, intimacy. Because yeah. I think that when I've talked to quite a lot of people, I've kind of got come late to podcasts, um, but I've really got into it in this last year, and I've done all my podcasting in the last 12 months. Um, And I talk about sometimes how you can do things on a podcast that you can't now do in a kind of media interview yeah. where it's like, time and no space and questions, you've got to get the answer. But when you talk there about intimacy, that's that's more like what I'm thinking about in a podcast conversation. It's like you have the time you need.
0: Well, that was what I hoped broadcasting would be. I don't think I ever realized that there's a whole machine that of permission <laughs> that has to happen that um, allows a great broadcast media you know, experience to feel intimate. My first job was in radio. (laughs) You talked before the podcast, we were talking about um, our younger days. And I, my my first job other than lifeguarding and babysitting was uh, running a small radio station that didn't even exist until I was in high school. I was the first voice on these airwaves. And I loved radio because the distance between having an idea and turning it into a product was so minimal. And then I found, and I eventually worked in, in television and in um, documentary production, and the hardest part for me was how many moving pieces had to work right in order for my idea to become real. And there's, it's, I've never thought about that as intimacy, but it certainly is. Um, you know, My strengths profile is all about people, and it's also, for me, it's about how easily can I let you in to what's going on in my head and how quickly can i explore what's going on in yours and gosh i've never i've never made those connections before thank you <laughs> but that is intimacy for me
1: and it's so interesting i mean this is for me is the magic of the podcast that so often i'm sitting here thinking things i've not thought before and mm. you're sitting here thinking things you've not connected before and that's really powerful what do you think that is i think it's something about it's something about the space it's something about having, there's not, there's not a time limit on a podcast. Mm. I, I quite like that. It's not like, so we've got to do all the stuff we've got to do in 20 minutes. Yeah. It's like, if this turns into a two hour conversation, that's worth a two hour conversation, then it's a two hour conversation. And, and I, I have to say, there's a, there's a great podcaster in the UK called Stephen Bartlett, who now is doing 10 million downloads a month, something like that, like ridiculous numbers on his podcast. And his average podcast length is an hour and 45 minutes. And he has these incredibly rich conversations with huge names mm. in UK politics or media, or social media, different things. Um, and you just get lost in the conversation and there's no kind of, there's no rush to it. Yeah. Um, so I, 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 I love this um, in, in, in this kind of medium. And also to just meet, bring minds together in, in a way that is, that is just, I think it's quite extraordinary. Um, and I love this time. That I have with people.
0: Thank you for inviting me. Uh, We had a pre call before this, and I knew very, very quickly that this was not going to be about the beginning, middle, or end of the podcast, but that it was just how can we think together and and create something
1: helpful. You're making me think when you're talking about your early days in radio, I spent a little bit of time, a few years. Um, in hospital radio, which in the UK is quite a big deal. And apparently in the US is not a thing at all. But
0: No, we're missing out. <laughs>
1: yeah, a lot of hospitals have their own in-house radio station. Uh, and it's typically in the basement, often between the restaurant, staff restaurant and the mortuary. Um, and when I was there, it was the days just into CDs. So we had a little mm. selection of CDs. That was quite exciting. But almost everything was vinyl records and you had to queue them up and all mm-hmm. this kind of stuff. Um, and it's just... I didn't have anywhere to go with that, other than you've just brought back a wonderful memory for me of of hospital radio and being um, being uh, driven home. So I was only about eighteen or so at the time. In I had a co-host, and my show was called Midweek Madness on a Wednesday. Uh, my co-host had a car. This again probably won't resonate in the US, but it was called a Fiat One Two Six, which is probably physically one of the smallest cars that's ever existed. And yes, you just you've just filled my head with amazing memories of of those times. Oh. So, I really appreciate that. So, so take us on then after after broadcast you came into the Gallup organization and was was that a was that a sort of determined step? Was it somewhere that you wanted to find a place at or, you know, how do how do you find your way there?
0: Not even a little and You know, uh, for a long time at Gallup, I shied away from telling people this because it sounded like it somehow was uh, working against my credibility. I, I still, I was working full time in TV, and I. This is probably one of my major life unlock moments. So big reveal. Um, I, I remember feeling just not as excited as I should be about the job that I had because I had on paper. The job that every person goes to broadcasting school for. I was working in a local news station. I was working my way up. I um, had moved on from being what we called a one-man band of, you know, I've got the camera, I'm the editor. I show up at three o'clock in the morning when there's a fire or a cat in a tree, and <laughs> I, um, and I, I do it all myself, and I kind of loved that, you know, the autonomy of it. I was up for more lives. I was probably on my way to. Uh, promotion to a larger market. There was everything that I was supposed to want. And I could not shake the feeling that I wasn't where I was supposed to be. And um, I, I think I even had a, a screener for depression at the time thinking, oh, so, you know, what's wrong with me? Because here on paper, I've always been that you know, type A, you, you say what it is and I'll go achieve it. And here I was in this situation where I achieved everything that I was supposed to achieve and I just didn't feel it. And to the extent that I went back to my college career counselor and said, What's wrong with me? And she looked at my transcript and my current situation and said, Nothing, you're fine. Now I know it's probably just not a good counselor. <laughs> but in the moment, I thought, Oh no, something's really wrong. And I remember getting stuck in traffic in my, I, I drove a 1997 Honda Accord. Uh, so I remember being in this little car and I was on what is now called Rosa Parks Way in Lincoln, Nebraska, and it was probably January because I remember it was cold. And I get stuck in traffic, which really isn't stuck. It's just a stoplight that always is backed up. I'd been stuck there before, but there was something about this day um, because there was a Jeep in front of me that had a spare tire cover that said life is good. And I'd sort of seen that brand around. It's um it's apparently a brand started by two guys who camped on peanut butter and jelly or something. Um and I just sat there staring at the back of the vehicle in front of me, thinking, this is how I should feel, and I don't feel that way. What am I gonna do? Well, subsequently, I also had an interview with a friend who worked at Gallup. Um, I was at the University of Nebraska and then at a news station in Nebraska, which is in Lincoln just down the road is Gallup in Omaha. Um, and almost because of the proximity, it didn't seem to me to be um, a large leap or a place that you know, I needed to be intimidated by. And this friend was in charge of testing out interviews, and quite honestly, just needed somebody to test an interview on for call center managers. And I said, sure, you can test it on me. seven interviews later, she very kindly said, Micah, we don't think you'd be a great call center manager, but you do have talent. Do you want to come interview? And I said, no, (laughs) because I was supposed to be moving to New York and interning for Katie Couric, which by the way, my friends ended up doing (laughs) and loving. So nothing against that, but turns out it just wasn't the path for me until I got stuck in traffic and thought, you know, that life is good sentiment it just might line up with this offer that I've had to come check out what the Gallup world is like. So I went back on the no, called up the friend and said, actually, can I, can I just come talk to you? And um, took a leap because it simply felt good. And then it didn't feel good for a while. I probably spent three years professionally working where I just kept thinking, what have I done? <laughs> and um, Then I found um, that if I aligned with the people who I wanted to be like, the people who I wanted to grow me, um, that that made more of a difference in my day to day than the work that I was doing. And thankfully, Gallup is a really flexible place. um, For me, that works. For some people, it's overwhelming because it's not really your path, isn't necessarily determined for you as an employee, or at least it wasn't 15 years ago. And it allowed me the flexibility to say, wow, you know, these. These great thinkers, these wonderful people, these uh, people I'm learning from—they all work in the hallway over. Could I go work with them? <laughs> and I did. And uh, so I first started working in our education team purely because the people who worked there were people I felt like could grow me, and people I wanted to be cared about by. And then that, gosh, now we're probably ten years after that, um, where I realize <laughs> in your introduction, now I'm famous for it, like. Never really thought that would happen. And Gary, as I say this, I'm, I'm careful not to just leave my success up to chance because I really don't like those stories where people say, oh, this just landed in my lap. I worked really hard at this. I worked really hard to be, be choosy about who I was spending my time with and what kind of a difference I was making in the world. So I don't want this to come as cross as I just got lucky.
1: I think that's really helpful. That's really important, and I want to come back to that. I want to stop in a moment. My regular listeners will know that, one, I'm fascinated by moments, mm. and two, I don't know the answer yet to how to, how to find an unlocked moment mm. because, by definition, they are fleeting, they are unexpected, they are remarkable. But what I find to be so common in people's stories of what I consider a real unlock moment is how vivid the memory of that moment is. You remember where you were, you remember who you were with, you remember what you were thinking. And as you described your moment there, it was 25 years ago. You yeah. told me which car you were driving, okay, and where you were. But you told me what was written on the car in front of you in the traffic jam.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And you told me what the weather was. Oh, I can still see I'm it. I'm sitting there going... <laughs> Yeah, I can't remember. I mean, I can't remember what I had for breakfast this morning, but, um, but that's, for me, that's fascinating. It's like there's something in that moment, which was a little thing, but also a huge thing, that, that little moment of realization. And I find this now when I'm talking to people on the podcast and in coaching, just in general conversation. Sometimes it's something that they don't even recognize in the moment as as how significant it is. Mm -hmm. But then over time, they they look back and they realize what that was. And I I just kind of want to mark that because you described it so beautifully, what it is that I feel like I'm kind of trying to find in people and trying to explore and understand in people. But that sense of you're in your car, you're cold day, you're in the traffic jam. This is literally what it says on the car in front. It's fascinating. Mm -hmm.
0: I have a horrible memory too. So the mm-hmm. fact that I can recall all that,
1: I... I can remember exactly where I was when I figured out that I didn't have to be a doctor if I didn't want to be. That was Did my I miss this episode
0: first... or can we tell it right now? No. <laughs> no
1: that, I mean, that was. So I, I trained in medicine, went to medical school, did eight years. I and mean, in year seven of that journey that I'd probably been on for about 10 years, um, that, that was what I think back is probably my first sort of unlock moment. I've had two or three in my, in, in my journey. Um, and I was, I was chasing this. I sh- there, should, there must be something in this mm. that I will love. I just haven't found it yet. And I would spend the way medical training in the UK would work is you do eight weeks in pediatrics and then you do 12 weeks in surgery and then you do six weeks in psychiatry and then you do 10 weeks in radiology. And you learn all of the different specialties. And then at the end, you go, well, I really enjoyed pediatrics. So that's the path that I want to navigate on. And I got to the end of all of that. And I was like, it was all quite interesting. But none of it felt like the next 40 years of my career. And I really struggled with that because I was like, well, where do you go if you get to the end of that kind of rotation and you haven't found anything? And then I remember, I think I was in the lab building on the... Whichever floor it was, um, in a corridor between labs, on my own, and I just went. I don't have to do this thing if I don't want to. Doesn't mean I won't, but I don't have to. Nobody's making me. And I'd never considered doing something else before. Then I'd never considered the option of leaving medicine, which is not the thing to do. Like it's deeply round on, um, and you know you've wasted your training and you've wasted your career and all the money that's been spent and all the rest of it. And then I went but I'm not bringing my best self um, you know, for the next 40 years if I'm doing something I don't like. And I can remember that, that moment of clarity with similar sort of vividness in that moment. I can't remember what I did the six months before that mm. or the six months after that, really. Um, but in that moment, I can remember. And there's something about, you know, I guess at some point one day I might write the book about unlocked moments and telling these stories and just... Exploring them because the question I want to answer is how to your to the point you just made is you didn't get there by luck Mm -hmm. you didn't plan it out because it's not a planable thing necessarily but what you did do is you played your cards and you made some choices and you placed some bets and you create you put yourself in a certain environment that enabled you to figure out a path that in the end worked for you and that idea that. You can live without certainty, because in the end, nobody has certainty. Mm. But you can still have some determination of the future, I think is pretty powerful, actually. And, And in today's world, it is more uncertain than ever before. People who may have gone through many years feeling quite a high degree of certainty suddenly don't have it, and they kind of don't know what to do with it.
0: So was there something that kept you aiming for that experience, that joy? Uh, why, I think, here's what I'm thinking, why didn't you just give up and
2: think, oh, this is as happy as I'm going to get?
1: When I left medicine,
2: I figured out
1: when I started to look at other things, and this is really a talent and strength thing, I realized that. I didn't understand my strengths well enough. And years later, I did my Clifton strengths. probably something like 10 years later, I did my CliftonStrengths. So I didn't understand at that time in a formal structured way, but I could look back and see it. And really for me, it was about medicine training, not necessarily practice, but medicine training is an acquisition of knowledge. And I've talked a few times mm-hmm. on this podcast about as you go through a five-year medical degree in the UK, you learn 15,000 new words.
0: That nugget stuck in me from an episode I listened to of yours.
1: <laughs> yeah. ten, 10 new words a day for five years. And, and it feels like 10 new words a day. And I'm, I'm not good at acquiring volume of knowledge like that. Some people are just amazing at kind of drinking in a textbook. Um, I really love solving problems that nobody knows the answer to um, when there isn't an easily solvable answer. So it's not like doing a big research project or analyzing massive amounts of data. I love it when that's impossible, Mm. but you still need to figure out what to do next. And actually I found in consulting more of that kind of environment, And I think through my career and now in coaching, it's still kind of that. It's like the fascination of the unsolvable problem. Mm. But how do you solve it if it's unsolvable? And the idea that you can go, you know, if there are other coaches, for example, if there are other coaches you could work with who could help you, you should work with them. And if you find they can't help you, then we should have a conversation. That's how I think about it in my mind. Because I'm just, I'm really, I'm fascinated by that. I'm fascinated by people going, I haven't managed to figure this one out.
0: Yeah, I wonder if there's a predisposition that helps you catch the moment. Or if it's something we can facilitate. You know, I think about my experience, and I had really great people around me who were very helpful at serving up certainties that were helpful to live by. I remember um, I was part of a national group in high school. And then as I was applying to where to go to college, um, I thought I needed to go to the biggest name school and the Leader of that group was somebody I trusted, and I went to her and said, "What do you think? I've been accepted to all these different places." And she said, "You know, Micah, undergrad, so like your first four years at university, um, is really more about the people who can grow you." And you hear hear me like thirty years later, I'm still saying that that was what worked for me in my first real professional role was that I believed that kind of supportive narrative, and I had somebody who was aware enough to to put words to it in a way that I could remember it and carry it with me.
1: How does it feel when you look back and you think of, of being a person who needed to grow or be grown? That's it well? Or
0: I see it much more in hindsight than I did in the moment. And that might just be the, like, the neurology of being in your early 20s where you don't think you need help from anybody. And you're supposed to be that way. It's the only way you leave home. Um, but now looking back on it, I think, wow, I'm, I'm so glad that whether I knew what I was doing or not, I opened myself up to people who could help me. Because even today, I think my partner would tell you that asking for help is one of the things I do absolutely worst. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm not good at it. <laughs> but I am good at building relationships, and I just happen to be good at building relationships with great people <laughs> who, um, who want to help. <laughs>
1: And what was it about the environment that you were able to insert yourself into at Gallup that enabled you to grow in the way you did?
0: I think it has a lot to do with um, my early job at Gallup, and and what actually brought me there was um, not our developmental tools of Clifton Strengths, but our selection practice. Um, I was trained on in-depth predictive interviews um, and truly understood the the science and the necessity of how do you look at people's natural patterns of how they think and how they respond and how they behave and even how they feel about a situation and use that to help them find a position that's great for them. And that kind of belief at its core um, led to, I mean, you, you can't really sustainably sell that if you don't believe it, And I was working for people who had helped develop that instrument and were then supplying it to schools to help find excellent teachers and principals and support staff. And it was my job for a solid three years just to go teach large school districts how what's true and enduring and promising about great teachers. And I mean, that was a huge, like, I think, belief mission moment for me. I I found myself literally driving through the night. Um, to, to do that sort of work. And so it, it, it jives that the, the person leading that division also treated me like she believed in not just what I had acquired or what I had learned, but my talent at its core. And I, I don't think I realized it at the time, <laughs> but now that I look back on it, gosh, um, my first boss and all of the colleagues that I relied upon treated me like I was talented, assumed I was good at things, it handed me projects and said, figure it out. Um, and I think far too often we try to teach that out of people, out of fear that they won't be exactly like we, we think good should be, because we can't conceive of excellence outside of what we've already seen. Um, but I, you know, the truth of it is, like excellence tomorrow is going to be something that we haven't seen today. So, you know, aim for people who have good intentions and are super talented and treat them like they are.
1: I spent my whole career really either in or around consulting firms, research organizations, analytics organizations, and, you know, filled with brilliant, brilliant people doing brilliant work. Rarely things that I felt any kind of emotional connection to or really. Passion around, although I could recognise, you know, the quality of the insight that they were driving around the size and growth of a market, or the future valuation of a certain business, or whatever it is. Come back to what I said earlier about I really like trying to solve the unsolvable. Mm -hmm. You know, when 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 I first came across Gallup and a strengths coach took me through my Clifton Strengths assessment, and then years and years later, I really understood the richness and depth of what Gallup was doing. In trying to understand ethereal concepts like what makes people happy, I was like, that's interesting.
0: Unsolvable?
1: <laughs> Unsolvable. <laughs> but, but like, what an interesting question. And I had a, another guest on the Unlock Moment quite recently who's an incredible thinker actually called Seth Goldenberg. Um, and he is an artist who's become also a brilliant advisor to major corporates. And he's all about asking the right and asking the best question. And one of his brilliant questions was not, you know, what should you do next? He was just like, what's worth doing? And I always remember that question. And, and, and the, what actually makes people happy and what makes people able to be at their best is, is in some ways such a crazy question, but there's a bunch of people in Omaha, Nebraska trying to solve it. And, and, and that I just get a kick out of the idea yeah. that that's a thing. Yeah. So, and you're in the middle of that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's almost difficult to answer even your question about, you know, what was it about that? I'm like, well, if you'd met these people, you'd feel it too.
1: <laughs> so you built your career over, over many years at, at Gallup, and, and you acquired a, a level of kind of, you know, in-sector fame, let's put it that way, that, that, you know, coaches around the world know your face, know your voice. Um, what does it feel like now when... you? I guess you probably meet quite a lot of people that feel like they know you quite well, mm. and you have no idea who they are.
0: You talk about intimacy of a podcast. I mean, I have people who say, "Oh my gosh, Mike, I'm listening to you right now," <laughs> or "You're always with me on my walks," or "You know, I take you with me when, um, you know, I mow the lawn." For me, I earlier today I was hanging out with my friend Jim Collison, who also did this podcast with me. I never did an episode alone, um, and Jim and I were. Well, I called him specifically because I met with a brand new client who I realized very quickly was only new to me. I was not new to them, Um, and I can usually tell when they do a double take, and then they because it's over Zoom, and then they'll sort of back up and be like, "Oh my gosh, can you say my name?"
1: (laughs) 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 And it's can I record it as my exactly,
0: exactly, (laughs) or or they'll say something like. Um, my friends are not going to believe that I talked to the Micah. And I'm like, well, how many Micahs do you know? <laughs> it's not that hard to, to feel like Micah is a special thing. But this person had told me um, really deeply what our podcast had meant in their life during a really difficult time. And they told me in ways that I didn't set out to create in the world, and I never even thought could happen. Um, it was a a you know, very complicated Venn diagram of religion and life and purpose and career that this person was telling me about. And what I loved was the first thing they said was, you know, I, I love what Gallup is doing. Um, and then they said, and the podcast and the other stuff and the Clifton Strengths piece, because uh, what was so cool about that experience for me was we were never one product, we were never one thing. Um, it was what a bunch of crazy, ambitious people in a cornfield in Nebraska I thought was possible. Like, let's, let's figure out what actually is clicking when things are clicking for people. And it's a, it's a great honor to get to be lumped into that kind of a legacy.
1: And you and Jim are one of the great double acts of the, of the coaching world. Thank um, you. And you had that great um, sort of balance off each other. Yeah. You know, um, I've I done quite a bit of work with Jim. On Clubhouse in the last year, mm-hmm. actually, he would come onto our Clubhouse room, um, and just that that whole dynamic of making it feel real and human and um, meaningful for people. And I've had so many, so much feedback from people that I sent to go and watch those videos, and they get the same feedback all the time. It's like now I understand myself in a way mm. I never did before. Um, it's it's really exciting that, that you got to do that.
0: It is. So, it is very exciting and. Again, it, different manager, but it, it only happened because I had a really great manager who believed in talent who, at the time, um, said, sure, you can do this little thing. And I think it was because he was playing the long game with me as an employee. Um, I would just come back from maternity leave, and um, I thought, oh, I'm in this job that's like 75% travel. I was doing essentially it, like seminar leading and, and coaching on, on campus for organizations. And I thought, well, I have to quit because I can't do that anymore because I had not thought about who was going to watch this kid. Um, And uh, my husband at the time was in the U.S. Air Force. Um, It would be, I don't know, desertion for him to stay home as much as he needed to. And so I remember calling up my boss and saying, well, today I think this is the day I have to quit. And instead, unbeknownst to me, he had already done his homework of figuring out all these other options of how I could still add value. And I don't know what he would say about it at this point, but I'm pretty sure he's just throwing me a bone. Like, you can do this silly little podcast thing. It's fine. (laughs) Then it turned into six seasons of something that um, became incredibly helpful. And today is part of like our strategy as an organization. And it really, it was not because we set out to be podcasters. I think it was, again, this is a this is making a big leap, but I think it all comes from believing that you don't have to have it figured out in order to, to support people who will do good work.
1: I think it's amazing. Did you ever run the numbers for how many people listened or how many episodes you did? Oh,
0: yeah. How do you think I ever got a raise? I had to fight for that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we started Theme Thursday, our podcast, as like an unpaid... Extracurricular activity. <laughs> I was, I, we probably took a big hit. Um, well, I didn't, but somebody took a big hit for us to be able to play around and do a weekly podcast. Um, I'll put it this way we have, I remember when we hit a million downloads and we measure uh, based on just those who listen to the audio because it's a little bit harder and a little more of a consistent bar to hit. Um, we hit a million downloads right after I moved here to Nebraska. So that was two years ago. um, And we still, um, we have not recorded a new theme Thursday for almost three years. And we still get about 13,000 downloads um, a month. So that translates into several millions of dollars in um, revenue. And more importantly, it makes strengths accessible to people who otherwise wouldn't know the the complexity of this sort of consulting beast—it it feels personal, and it feels like something you can do and something you can recommend to somebody you love. And truly, that's the only way we do what we're really setting out to do, which is, like you said, help help people live better lives.
1: So you had this incredible career at Gallup mm. over the years. You travel around the world. You did all these amazing things, touch these people's lives, and then you came to a realization of what came next. Bring us into the story of of where you, where you came to in terms of next step. I
0: didn't realize how much of a story it would be, but I was talking to Jim today, and he says that people still come up to him and say, I'm so sorry, as if I died. <laughs> and he says, Micah, like, I've already practiced for your funeral because everybody is sending me condolences. He's still at Gallup, and I'm not. And um, then the next thing they say is, what are you going to do? And he goes, well, I'll, you know, I'll continue. And then they'll say, what is she going to do? And... <laughs> Jim, my you know, best friend at work, has a really great answer that I think is one I will adopt. Um, it's that you know, I have high ideation. I, I love just kind of pushing the boundaries of creativity. And I love doing it in a very fast way, which is why I was probably better on radio than I ever would have been on TV. Um, and I think I just had a little too much creativity for the corporate space. I was never asked to leave. Um, in fact, I was asked to stay. But um, in January of this year, so I I quit in August of this year. And in January, I was having like the third best year of my professional career. And I don't mean in rank order. I mean, best for the third consecutive year. Like I was just kind of top of my game. And that was a little bit of luck because I went from being on March 11th, 2020, the only person on the team who did virtual learning. And it was like bottom of the totem pole. It was a concession so I could stay home with my kids to March 12th, suddenly needing to teach a whole company how to do everything virtually. And I had a lot of help. And we managed to make it through like early pandemic lockdown days and expand our revenue in, in learning. And that very well could have, I, I realized it very well could have been a moment that we shut down that entire wing of the organization if it weren't for a lot of people's hard work. So that was what gave me the trajectory to have a really good couple of years. And I always thought that I would, um, so my husband and I now live in our, our hometown Um, In rural Nebraska, it is three hours by car to the closest airport. I kind of thought I would retire from Gallup while working from here because I never imagined there'd be another organization that would challenge me professionally and allow me to live this far away from an airport. And so I went into it with like a overwhelming sense of gratitude that perhaps prevented me from dreaming any bigger. And then I got here and realized my town has fiber internet, like pumped into my house. I lived in the largest city in Virginia and did not have this good of upload speeds. (laughs) So I just entertained the idea that maybe there's bigger ways I could be of service to the world. Maybe I can make a difference in a way that feels just slightly more me. Um, And even that, like I never thought I could be me and be successful in a corporate space. And I still believe that if the pandemic hadn't locked us all down, I would have to dress a little bit more like someone else and sound a little more like someone else. The the corporate uniform probably would have stuck around a little longer. But for me, it accelerated the authenticity desire that people have. And even if you look back at like early days of social media, um, YouTube itself has changed how we think about what's credible and what's good and what, what can be relied upon. Um, so I, I found myself in the space where I was open and I hired a coach and I told all my friends, um, Hey, can you please just keep pushing me? Can you, can you not let me just get comfortable? <laughs> and, um, I thought at first I was going to quit my job um, at an earlier point in the year. And then I got through our summit and I had so much fun. I thought, I can't leave here. And then I thought I was going to quit in June. And I went in person to work with some of the greatest people on the planet, my now former colleagues. And I thought, well, I really can't quit now because that was fun. And it got to be August and I got an email. Do you want me to go into this moment here? Yeah. So I'm less interesting than sitting in traffic in Lincoln. I'm sitting in my chair in my office, which is where I had spent a solid three years not moving from that chair. Um, And I remember getting an email, uh, a resourcing request. I was being requested by name to go to speak in the one place that I always said jokingly I would leave Gallup for, to an audience that made my heart sing. And I realized, you know... I'm not as excited about this as I should be. And now, in hindsight, it is the same story <laughs> as me being stuck in traffic that desire for excitement. And it's not just like I need drama, but I didn't feel the magnetic pull toward what I was doing that I know in my bones, even without thinking, I should feel and that I want to feel. And it was a Wednesday. And, um, I had already been talking to my boss about, hey, I'm, I, I just wanted to let you know I'm wondering how else I can contribute and I am you know, looking for what else is out there. Every time I do my dream sheet of what a job would be, it sounds exactly like what I'm already paid to do. So I'm a little bit stuck. Well, that was the moment I remember I sent her a Teams message and I was like, we should talk. And she wrote back saying, are you okay? And I, and I wrote back on Teams saying, I'm fine. I don't think you're gonna like this conversation. <laughs> I did not wake up that morning thinking I was going to resign, but she called me back and I was like, "Yeah, i I need to go, and here's why." And what do you know? She let me keep the gig. <laughs> so, I um I resigned. I worked the rest of that month, uh, and I made it a vow to say, "Okay, whatever I do next, has to feel a little bit more like me," and you know, has to feel like I'm valued for what I'm doing.
2: And if, if that doesn't stick, I'll change again. That resonates so much with
1: how I felt when I left medicine, with that sense of, I don't know where I'm gonna go next, but I know it's not this. Not that what I've done before is bad or wrong or a poor experience, it's the same as yours. You know, you had an amazing career and experience, but you knew it was time. And that commitment to say, even if this next thing doesn't work out, the, right, the answer isn't to go back. The answer is to go on again. And that's really powerful. I remember, this is a story I have never told on this podcast. Um, I went to medical school, I went to three medical schools over my time, two I normally talk about. Um, so I... I spent three years in one medical school doing my kind of lectures, and then I spent five years in another doing my kind of clinical training on the wards. But before I'd gone to the medical school where I did my undergrad, I'd actually been to another school, a very um, high-profile, high-prestige, very small school in London. Um, And I realized when I arrived that... um, I didn't fit in by a really long way. Um, so it was a very, very alcohol driven culture in those days in particular. It's become a little bit, the, those medical schools have now integrated with other universities. But at the time, it was the very old school kind of London medical school kind of culture. Um, and I quit after nine days of my university career. Um, and I remember at the time I was like, this is not right, but completely not right, not for me. Um, and I know that I might be quitting my entire medical career, because I wasn't at that time thinking about doing something other than medicine. And I might be quitting my entire medical career um, after nine days. And in going to that medical school, I'd had straight offers after school to go to all the different schools. And after I left, I went, well, I do want to be a doctor, but I just don't want to go to that school. And so I applied to every Medical school in the country, um, and there were 26 of them, and 25 said no because they were like, "Well, you know, you've been to one, and it wasn't a fit. So that's probably you, not a fit for medicine." And one said yes, and that's the only reason that I spent the next eight years training in medicine was because one out of 26 said said yes. But I remember at that time going, "But if it doesn't work out, and I've made this what feels like a reckless decision in the moment, well, I just have to figure that out, and that's okay." And I think that idea of committing, so when people, a lot of people face into difficult decisions and they say, I'm not gonna take it because I'm worried about what might happen if it goes wrong. And what you're saying is, well, it it might go wrong, but if it does, do something about it.
0: Thank you for sharing that. What do you think when you think back to the,
2: oh my gosh, only one out of 26 said yes. I think I'm
1: probably glad I didn't know that at the time because I was only like 18, 19, so I wasn't really wise enough to probably deal with that kind of information. Now I look back and I think, well, I was always a bit like that. I was always a bit, I was comfortable with, it's the right decision in the moment and there's not only one path to be happy in life. So I think that this is only my personal philosophy. My personal philosophy is, is there's only really now that matters. And actually, Marshall Goldsmith on this podcast was was saying that same thing. He said, the only time to worry about being happy is now. And the only place to worry about being happy is where you are. Um, and that really resonated, because for me, it was that sense of, you know, you sometimes you just need to make a call and be okay about that. And know that, It might not work out as well as another option that you can't imagine yet, but that's still the decision you make now based on your best understanding and your best thinking. And I say to people, if it's a big decision, make sure you've thought about it carefully, make sure you have slept on it, make sure you've asked your best friends and then make a call.
0: Yeah, my dad was a fighter pilot and he always said um, the worst decision you can make is not to make a decision. If you find out you're going the wrong direction, turn around. <laughs> I find that in coaching a lot, um, people get paralyzed by, by the way, I've become a much better coach in the last two months than I ever was before. Um, and it's partly because I'm doing it more. It's partly because I'm choosing my clients. And it's also partly because I've am i been through more and I'm just getting better at listening. But I find a lot of my clients get really, they shut down very quickly when they don't know what's going to happen. And sometimes the most helpful thing I'll say is, well, what if, like, let's, let's play that out. What would you do if, um, you asked for more money and the job offer went away because of it? Or what would you do if, um, you know, you, you say this assertive thing and people don't like you and almost, almost 100% of the time they stop and you can see in their face and hear in their voice that you have like held their hand off of the track that they already were so certain was going to happen and you've said wait a m- you can y- you can choose <laughs> you can have an offering up here just to figure out what's going on and
2: you'll probably find out that you're going to be okay <laughs> and what do you do when they stop? I stop with them. And I stay quiet. And then they say, well, I
0: would. You know what's funny is they usually don't give me options. They usually know. Um, They don't say I would do this or this or that. They kind of get quiet and then they take a deep breath. And then it's like the words come from around their waistband. (laughs) It's always like something less cerebral. And something just uh, about their knowing comes out where they say something like, well, I'd try again. Or, well, I'd realize it wasn't where I wanted to be. And then I try really hard not to let them diminish uh, where sometimes they want to go next, which is the, oh, I'm so ashamed I didn't realize that. Um, because it, it's really hard to get off of that track that you're on without a coach to help you down off of it.
1: One of the most profound thoughts about coaching I had quite recently, my supervisor in coaching is called Claire Petrick. She's a master coach for the International Coaching Federation. She wrote the book, Simplifying Coaching, and she's one of the most, honestly, magnificent coaches I've ever met. And she's so she's just like, I just notice what I notice. And she said this thing to me a few weeks back, and she said, I was in a group, and she said, I just figured something out. And she's been at the top of the game for 30 years in coaching. I've just figured something out. She said, when they're silent, I need to be silent too. But I also need to stop myself staying in the moment that I was in when they started being silent. Because when they stop being silent, they will have moved on. And I need to be ready to pick them up where they are now. And I was like, okay, that's deep. <gasps> But so good. Go, Claire. <laughs> Claire Patrick is a, is, a, is a real gem. She does a little podcast uh, called Coaching In. And it's this idea of coming to an English country pub and just talking about yes. coaching. So people ask her questions online. And she said, that's a great question. Come and talk to me about it in the Coaching In.
0: I love that.
1: Anyway, there's a little aside about silence in coaching, but it's really, it's interesting. I hope listeners, when they're listening to, to what Micah just said, it's the idea of, When you find a moment, a beginning of realization, stay with it, actually. I was in a conversation today with a long-standing coachee, who's a dear friend as well. And she was talking about trying to influence somebody on a particular thing. Um, And she said, I said what I thought should happen. They said they agreed. And I said, right. And I said, and in that moment you said, right. What happened to their thinking? And she was like, we'd just made a decision. And I said, but had they made the decision? And she went, well, it turned out they hadn't. And I said, so what would happen if you just didn't close off that part of their thinking and just leave them to reflect on the consequences of the thing they've just agreed to and really sort of Emotionally connect with it. And it was something that was quite an emotive kind of topic. And she was like, I can see what I'm not allowing to happen, which is that full sort of immersion in that decision. And really, I think that's something very powerful about figuring out the path ahead is that you do have to sit with it, you have to live with it. Um, And often I meet people who try to figure things out. To a deadline. So one of the quotes I put in my book, The Idea of Mindset, is you can't think to a deadline, because what I mean by that is we're all living lives where there's tasks, there's things to do, and they've got deadlines. So you're like, I've got to do the washing up by five pm. I've got to pick up the children from school at this time, whatever it is. But when you're going, well, what should I do next? And you've described this so eloquently. It wasn't the right time to decide to move on in the beginning of the year, it wasn't the right time to decide to move on in June. It was there noodling around, you know, at some point, maybe, you know, that's the direction of travel. And then when you knew, you knew. And you knew in a really profound way. And you knew because the reaction you felt you should have had to a piece of amazing news wasn't there. And so I say, you know, don't think, don't try and think to a deadline. You have to give your brain the space and time to do the thinking it needs to do. But when you know, you know. And if it's a real unlock moment, then you'll remember exactly where you were and who you were with and what you were thinking in that, mm-hmm. in that moment. What did, it, what did you learn about yourself as a coach when you were coaching no longer under the magnificent umbrella of Gallup?
0: You know, I think a big change for me it has been Something my friend Rosie Liesfeld always talked about, um, who I also made friends with at Gallup and coached with at Gallup. But um, we teach in our certified coach course, the framework of name, claim, aim, um, or awareness, um, appreciation, application. And I th- Rosie always had kind of a problem with that. I hope she's okay with me saying this out loud. Uh, but because she said, you know, sometimes the value of a coaching conversation is that people just know what they need to think more about. And she was very uncomfortable having to qualify that thinking as aim uh, in order to fit the formula. Uh, And when you were talking about, you can't think toward a deadline, that was what it made me think of, of, well, sometimes coaching is just accelerating the discovery phase for people and that they will Take it further if you've done your job right. Um, I'll, I, I first. So most of my coaching clients have no idea who I am, have no idea what the Gallup is, and only take strengths so that I can look at their profile. And they don't really want to know what number seven is on their full thirty four or what it means. And that's been fascinating because when I do get to work with clients who have some context into Clifton Strengths or who've already kind of done the. Um, calisthenics <laughs> then I can just run the marathon with them like we can jump in and for a while I thought I was going to have to do that with the clients who did not have that experience and I've, I had one of them flat out tell me Micah I don't I don't need to know my strengths I just need you to know them and guide me toward them and that was cool because that's what I do anyway But I also found that I was working with clients who had come to me by referral who had never had a coach before. And many of them are in deadline driven roles. And it was, I could feel a little bit of frustration, maybe a little bit of sense of um, like they were lost, like they were in a little bit of a fog trying to describe what we were doing. They never wanted less of me, but they, they did wish they could say, who I was and what I was doing for him. And I realized, well, I'm not helping him name claim aim and like shampoo, rinse, repeat. And it wasn't until I, um, one of my clients really wanted to get better at coaching his people. He still doesn't like to use the word coaching. Um, but I sent him a book by David Rock called quiet leadership. Do you know it?
1: I don't know, but David Rock's come up in conversation. This is the second time this week. Oh,
0: well, that must, must be a sign. Um, it was a book that a Gallup friend gave me when I w- worked with her in Germany, like probably 10 years ago. And I had not read it in 10 years when I recommended this book. So somewhere David Rock must be on the ether, like trying to <laughs> come through to our clients. But it's a book that describes in very practical terms how to have a conversation about helping somebody think instead of solving the problem for them. And it, it it, for me, it was my introduction to coaching. I didn't know it at the time. But I sent a, a copy of this book to a couple different clients. And they came back and said, oh my gosh, now I understand why I have you. <laughs> so it's been freeing and really amazing to get to just be a, a long-term coach. Um, when I was coaching at Gallup, I was doing a lot of one-off or um, maybe I would meet with my clients four or six times a year, and now most of my clients I meet with weekly, and that creates such an abundance mindset in our, in our individual calls. I don't feel the pressure to um, you know, tell them what we're going to do, and then do it, and then wrap up and remind them what we did. Um, instead, I know that we're, we're going to speak again, and I can be brave, and I can use curse words, and I can... <laughs> Talk about my actual opinion in a way that, like, they're not going to think is uh, scientific. Uh, and and there was nothing against Gallup. It was just I was in a position where what I said carried a different kind of weight. Um, and it's fun to be in a different space.
1: You know what you say about about that kind of constraint? Isn't it's not a Gallup thing. No. It's a it's a lot of coaching thing. That I yeah. I, I talk to so many coaches who, gone through their training. And they're absolutely rightly thinking about the ethics of coaching, the process of coaching, and trying to be the best coach they can be and have the greatest impact. And very often, that, I, I observe that that turns into quite significant imposter syndrome, actually. Um, and, and coaches feeling that there's, a, there's what they ought to do and what they should do, oh, and not enough letting go and being yourself.
0: Oh my gosh, yes. And I, ca- I catch myself doing it all the time. Because I will notice that I'm asking a close-ended question, or I'm nudging them with an idea of what I think they should do. And I'll even say out loud, I shouldn't be doing this, or this isn't really coaching. And every time I apologize for myself, my clients go, uh, that's what I want.
2: (laughs) That's really useful.
0: But I also tell them ahead of time, like, "Ah, you have full permission to interrupt me. Um, That I don't... But well, lately I've been saying, I already like you. There's nothing you can do that will make me unlike you. And there's nothing you can do that'll make me like you more. So let me sit on the same side of the table as you and take a flashlight through your brain together. While we're in a coaching conversation, this is not about uh, the, what's in between us. This is about us being on the same side together and looking at what's in front of us. Um, so I think that gives them some... I suppose ICF would say it's part of the coaching agreement, and then you can get away with it.
1: (laughs) Use an interesting word in the middle of that. Again, the regular listeners will know about my obsession with individual words. And the one you used was freeing or freedom. Mm -hmm. What does freedom mean for you?
2: Oh. Well... Yes, that's the pursuit. That's the that's the end goal. That's what I'm still trying to catch.
0: Um, I think freedom means having the. How about this? Taking the permission that you've already been given, and owning it. And I, I think you know, early on, when I first ex- started exploring leaving my corporate job and going out on my own. A good friend asked me what I thought I would gain, and my first reaction was freedom. And at the time, I think I wanted freedom to choose my own clients um, and to choose my own restraint. And then later on, as I was still mulling around, I'm talking about this like it's a lifetime. It's like the span of six months. Um, But I do remember still feeling like, oh, I am beholden to someone else. At any point, someone could email me and need something from me, and the right thing to do would be to, re- to respond. And even when I'm working too hard now for myself, um, the idea that that is my doing feels freeing. Um, I really thought that leaving my corporate job and going out on my own would, would get me that freedom. And Here's unlock moment number three, chapter three. Um, A couple weeks ago, I was getting a massage. Um, Not a relaxing, like, lavender and sage sort of situation. This was, I can't turn my head to the left, and I'm afraid I'm going to ruin my teeth because I'm clenching them too much. Please, physio, take care of the, the neck situation. And... I'm good friends with my masseuse, as probably won't surprise you. Um, And so we were talking the whole time, and it really hurt. It was one of those like deep tissue, you've got something going on massages. And she asked me the same thing that a masseuse three years ago had asked me. And she touched the side of my face. If you feel like right below your temple, right in front of your ear, kind of in between your nose and your ear, there's a gigantic muscle there. And I know you're a doctor, so I'm not telling you anything new. Um, that muscle on me at the time was so tight and clenched that like, I can look at pictures of myself during that week and I look distorted. Uh, mumps. It was, yeah, it looked like mumps. Um, apparently it's called TMJ.
1: Unilateral mumps.
0: Oh my goodness. Yes, lopsided mumps. Uh, and she asked me, I'm laying on the, I'm, I'm like, naked, under a sheet, in the dark, looking up at white Christmas lights that are supposed to make me feel better (laughs) about where I am. And she says, Micah, what is going on? And she said it that way. And I remember thinking, holy buckets, leaving my job did not find me freedom. In that moment, I realized, oh my gosh, I thought I was leaving for freedom and I I trapped myself right away again. I was still feeling anxious that if I didn't answer my email, then I maybe would have promised something to somebody that I had forgotten to give. And that that's like my biggest fear. It's a dumb fear. Like, Micah, be afraid of spiders or something. But <laughs> like, poor, poor, poor execution is more frightening to me than spiders or snakes. I was still working from the minute I woke up until... After I should have been in bed, I was still valuing my worth by what somebody else would pay for it. And I was still spending a lot of energy worrying about how I was showing up in the world. Meanwhile, you introduced me as a celebrity today, and I was not letting any of that sink in. Um, so that, that moment for me was realizing, oh my gosh, you, you can quite literally strip down. <laughs> and Micah, the, the solution still is not where you're working or what you're doing. It's, it's how you are approaching what you're doing. And I still have not figured this out. But now I'm very grateful to know that, um, you know, I'll always be with me, regardless of where I go. Maybe that's why it's easier for me to say, oh, if this job doesn't work out, I'll, I'll find another one. Um, because I'm less worried about that than I am. How can I kind of release myself and, and realize the invitation and the permission and the good things that I have so that I can show up for them.
1: What a great story.
0: Have you had anyone talk about their unlocked moment being nudity before?
1: <laughs> That's a whole chapter in the book. <laughs> if people have enjoyed this conversation, they'd like to find out more about you, get in touch. How can they find out more about you?
0: I'll have my clothes on. Uh, You can check me out at hellomica.com. That's H-E-L-L-O-M-A-I-K-A.com.
1: Amazing. The Unlock Moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For Strengths Guru and Executive Coach, Micah Librand, the moment when she realized she was her own greatest strength, unlocked the confidence to find freedom and strike out in her own right to pursue her dream of a life helping others. Micah, you are a bright star in the coaching constellation and you have inspired so many people around the world to discover how to unlock their natural talents. Thank you for sharing your story with such openness and authenticity. And thank you so much for joining me today on The Unlock Moment.
0: Thank you so much.
1: This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. Find me on Instagram at Dr. Gary Crotez and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. The more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening and join me again soon here on The Unlock Moment.